in order to do that job? He said, well, of course you do. I said, got the wrong person. <laughs> hey. But the real question is, did they have the right person all along, but they were no. looking for the wrong person? <laughs> no. No. Not with that crazy nun. No. Ain't going to do that to me. Just a life of stories. Well, I told that to somebody today. Um, I, right before I came over here, I got a, a phone call from the police department at SIU Edwardsville doing a background check on one of my former student assistants. And, um, and I said, well, thank you. You know, you called me just as I was doing something else. So as an old man, I can't just shift around and answer cell phones when I'm typing something in and all that. He said, well... Uh, I'm not exactly a young man either. I'm in my mid-40s. And I said, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> when you ask somebody like me how I am or what do I, you know, to answer one of these questions, you just might as well sit down comfortable and grab a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to find out what age is, young man. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Yes, shame on you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Shame on you. The magic pen. Yeah, I didn't know how to do any of this six months ago. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for... So, you know, the, the whole, oh, well, if you didn't pick up a special skill during the pandemic, you know, what were you doing with your time? It's like... No, no, there's nobody's asking anybody to go out there and become a better version of themselves in the midst of a pandemic and blah, 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 blah. Like anybody who's out there pushing that angle is problematic to me, to say the least. To, the say, the, to say the least, <laughs> but, because uh, there are so many side effects and, and implications of how we have to deal with this pandemic that um, to maintain yourself might be job enough right now. Yeah. The other side of it is I almost feel bad for picking up new skills during the pandemic. Like, oh, now I'm now I'm being that guy. <laughs> well, I certainly have decided that I'm not afraid of cameras anymore. Not with um, three or four Zoom meetings a day. <laughs> Put me back on the road. <laughs> you couldn't have said it better. <laughs> I had to do a, a keynote for a national conference in August, and they wanted me to record my entire 50-minute speech. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to be talking about music and art and some, and some literature, so I have to have that incorporated into the video. Mm -hmm. And I had never done anything like that because I have never used PowerPoint. Lucky man. Up until now. No. <laughs> that was it. And I can now say... I use PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> I used to just use the power to point. Now, <laughs> and um, it went over extraordinarily well, so well that somebody who was watching the whole thing invited me to do a sermon at a prayer service that was done yesterday morning, but they needed to have the video 
last week. And again, uh, okay, how do we do this? And Breon Lockett, the guy that used to be our student trustee, yeah. he had helped me do the 50-minute the thing back this summer. So I called him and said, "What? how did we videotape me? He said, you use the camera app on your computer. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So I used the camera app, and I did it on my laptop at home so I could get dressed up in my church outfit. And, and nicely, in my home office, there's a blank wall, because I always try to leave most, at least one wall in every room, mm -hmm. mostly blank. But there's a little carved ebony crucifix no cross just the body yeah. hanging on the wall that's the only thing on that wall so i was standing in such a way that jesus was right over my shoulder don't tell me i can't stage something are you uh, aren't you always standing in such a way that jesus is over your shoulder <laughs> you see that's exactly why we should be having this conversation <laughs> and that is exactly why we are having this conversation uh for episode nine uh, we have here uh, a very wonderful special uh, to so many people in our community, around the country, around the world. Uh, Father Joseph A. Brown, S.J. Semicolon, Ph.D. Um, I don't even remember if I caught the part where I got uh, talked to about the semicolon versus the colon uh, on camera, but uh, here we are. This is WTF Carbondale, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this lovely little place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And um, I'm hoping that I got the sound right on this one because I just pressed the recording button and figured I'd let it roll. Uh, <laughs> so I, um, We will know at some point, won't yeah. we? Little squig <laughs> squiggly lines go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So maybe it'll work. Uh, so in terms of our, our positioning, too, it's just a back-and-forth conversation. You can talk in the camera if you want to, but it's very much more that kind of like yes, news orientation. We're just talking to, yes. Yep. So however however you want to be there. So we were, uh, we were talking before uh, I hit the record button about uh, car wrecks and the car wreck that I was just in on the Dan Ryan comeback from Chicago yesterday, and then your car wreck, which was something that was very um, very intriguing to me because that, that's a major life event. I was working at Choate Rosemary Hall Boarding School, one of the most legendary private schools in the world. Mm -hmm. Kennedy's went there wow. in Wallingford, Massachusetts. And I was in graduate school at Johns Hopkins, I mean, at Yale. And once a month, I would go up and do mass on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And we had a wonderful community to help plan the masses, students and faculty. And I would drive up, and we would sit in somebody's house and have a wonderful visit, plan the whole thing. And I was on my way to take these two students back to campus when this young man, who the police subsequently told me had been high on marijuana because they saw the joints on the dashboard. The devil's lettuce. <laughs> and um, he told them that he's seen the stop sign, but he hadn't felt like stopping. So he plowed into our car totaling it, the two students had significant cosmetic damage. The one in the front seat had glass fragments and shards all in his face, he had to have plastic surgery. The one in the back, the windows uh, had shattered in such a way that a sliver went right into his eye. Mm -hmm. Now, they say that I was overly dramatic. 
I know you find this hard to believe. <laughs> I'm sure everybody does. But I got I op- they tell me this. I opened the door, got out of the car and walked about a 10 or 15 feet and then just collapsed backwards. It was misty, kind of rainy out that night and I could feel that on my face. Mm-hmm. But I kept hearing people say, "Can you hear us? Can you hear us?" And I went, "Yes," and went back to sleep. The next time I'm in a ambulance on my way to the emergency room and they're saying can you hear us can you hear us and I said yes and went back to sleep so they got me there they washed off the glass uh, particles off of my face Mm -hmm. and then they made made me do some physical exercises to find out that my right shoulder the ligaments had been snapped like you would break raw spaghetti to put into a pot Mm. and they said Mm. you probably will only you'll never get uh, fully normal use of my of your arm back Mm -hmm. Three, three physical therapy sessions. And I went on an eight-day spiritual retreat down in New York at Fordham University, and I took a nap after lunch, which is appropriate. (laughs) And I dreamed that I was in a car with my grandmother, who had died by that time, Mm -hmm. and we were going to see someone in the family, and there was a car accident in that dream. And there was this warm, hot uh, energy that went through my entire body in that dream. And when I woke up, my arm was completely healed. I'm not making it up. I went back to the physical therapist, and she said, you don't need physical therapy. Unfortunately, you had to have five sessions with us for it to be covered by your insurance. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so, you mean, so you mean insurance issues have always been a problem in America? Thank you. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, it's not just a new thing. <laughs> it is not a new thing. That was happening in 1981. <laughs> so there we are. But that healed. But I had brain damage, a very bad concussion. And that took a number of years to the point where I would lose my memory. I would make an appointment and then not be at the meeting, and people would call me up. I, I got very angry with my best friend in the priesthood because mm-hmm. I had called him and told him about it, and he never called me back. <laughs> so I wrote him a letter, and he said, um, have you talked to your doctor? Why? He said, let me just tell you these three or four things. And he said, how would I know that if you hadn't told me? You did talk to me. Completely blanked out. Mm-hmm. And so I had to work on that to the point where for a number of years I was really afraid because one of the things I used to do professionally as a teacher was to teach theater classes and do plays, Mm -hmm. acting, directing, writing. And I was afraid to ever try to do an acting job again because I didn't know if my memory would hold on. It took me a number. From 1981 to 1987, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't step on stage. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when I finally, and even more recently when I've been here (laughs) and done some plays at Southern Illinois University, the director, who is the same director for both of the, all three of the plays I did, Mm -hmm. has told Cass, now listen, you all can recover if something gets missed. We don't know about him. So you all have to really make sure that you're letting (laughs) him know he'll get the lines eventually. Who is, who is the director? Shaguno Jamie. Okay. Yes. But he's now head of the theater department here. That's great. And I did uh, Fences for him in 2006. Mm-hmm. I did Nightingale for Dr. Du Bois in 2017. And then uh, Gem of the Ocean in 2018. So um, 
I'm just going to get to the how'd you get to Carbondale question later because this is a great conversation. I love it. We'll we'll get around we'll get around to the the core topic there. How um how has the performance component of your life played into the way that you present uh, spirituality and religion uh, and and I, I don't know other <laughs> words to apply to it to um, congregates to students to anybody that you engage with how how do those two kind of find each other that uh, is one of the best other? questions anybody could ask me about that because that is the connection when I was in high school being the only black student in the entire high school mm -hmm. for three out of my four years mm -hmm. the nun who was our music director band director she made me drum major my sophomore year and she was as racist as you could find. <laughs> and when I said, but sister, this, I, this is a senior's job, not a sophomore. Mm -hmm. Why me? I'd only been in the band and orchestra one year. I'd only had one year of music lessons. So, and I was playing cymbals in the percussion because I wasn't good enough to play the flute in the marching band. Uh -huh. I said, why me? And she said, oh, you have more rhythm than anyone else. <laughs> Ding dong, <laughs> racist cliche. Uh -huh. So I went home and I told my father, I don't want to do it. And he said, you're going to. <laughs> I said, why? He said, I don't care what the job is. You're going to make it work. Uh -huh. And then you can come home to us. We're your family. Uh -huh. So separate the job from the culture. Yeah. And by the time I got to be a senior with my specially designed drum major's outfit <laughs> tailored exactly for me, I was known all over the southern part of the state of Wisconsin. I made it work. Uh -huh. Now, I have learned that I studied administration by being a drum major. Okay. How do you work with people to their best benefit and make them look good? Mm -hmm. I had to learn that sophomore, junior, senior of high school. I went into the seminary. I did some plays there. And I did an awful lot of other kind of work, and I learned all of that. And then when I started directing plays, I realized again, I was doing an incredible amount of learning how to be an administrator. Mm -hmm. So that at every school I have been at, Creighton, the University of Virginia, Xavier mm -hmm. University in New Orleans, and Southern Illinois University Carbondale, those skills I learned by being in the craft of art. Mm -hmm. The other issue, as an ordained priest for, as of this conversation here, uh -huh. 48 years, theater, if you're going to be an actor, the worst thing anybody can say is, well, you know, you all just get up on stage and fake it. <laughs> no. I have to get on stage and do what Jerzy Krotowski, the great Polish playwright, mm -hmm. said. Theater, genius, period. You have to be naked. You have to show what's mm -hmm. inside you. Mm -hmm. And really, to be a good actor, you have to have radical humility. Because mm -hmm. no matter what the script calls for, I have to make you believe that it's honest and true to me. Yeah. Which means that the words themselves have to take over. And I, I can't hide, mask, or suffocate any of my human experiences. <laughs> I have got to be able to say, this is the truth for you for these two hours. That goes into ministry when you are in a ritual. Liturgy is mm -hmm. doing these rituals for the benefit of the people. Greek theater, tragedies and comedies were done as rituals. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to get up and proclaim something, I have to be transparent. Now, that's the same quality an actor has to have. 
or any performer. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to be doing classical piano, which I'm not going to be doing, <laughs> but if I were going to be doing classical piano, I'd have to let my feeling of this music come through me so I can send it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the same thing if I'm standing at an altar speaking the words that everybody knows, but they have to say them in such a way that this is the first time you've ever heard them. So I see art in general as being constitutive to being fully human. But I also see it as part of what you have to learn in order to be successful in ministry, in mm -hmm. teaching. One of my dearest friends was a student of mine at Creighton back in the 1970s. He's now semi-retired from the St. Louis University Medical School mm -hmm. as an expert, national expert in pediatrics, especially with toxic stress in children who are marginalized. He's also a cabaret performer. <laughs> He's one of the co-owners of this wonderful cabaret in St. Louis, Central West End, called Blue Strawberry. Mm -hmm. He just did another cabaret performance recently called The TV Show. A couple years ago, his cabaret performance was called The Medicine Show. Mm -hmm. at, the at St. Louis University Medical School, he has been teaching a class for years called Acting Like a Doctor. <laughs> he teaches medical students how to do improvisational theater so they can walk into any setting and put the patient at ease. Mm -hmm. He took an improvisational theater class with me. We have worked together beautifully, and I see how those kinds of qualities would benefit anybody in any profession. I wish I had the ability to nod my head more than what I do right now. <laughs> Father Brown, I've got this big smile on my face. Normally, I would be bouncing my head back and forth going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But there's no moving this a whole lot at the moment. Okay. What I, what I love about this idea, and I'm, I'm, I am taking this conversation uh, to heart as much an educational experience for me to apply to things that I want to do here uh, as much as I am. This is a uh, you know, piece to, to show people uh, who you are and to tell your story. What you've just described to me, the, the performative art of everything, right? Because that's yes. really, really what this is. Yes. Um, you know, what, what I've talked about in a lot of these podcasts so far is my idea of Creator Dale, getting a bunch of creators, people that make videos, make music, make photographs, whatever it may be, mesh them all together in one place and make this bigger, visible action or activity. Um, what this does now, it opens me up even further. What is the everyday experience, uh, existence that you get people to wrap into this type of activity? Not that people are out here being a creator and then being whatever they are secondary to that, a pizza chef, an auto mechanic, a doctor, a professor, whatever it may be, that how do you be that person first and simply have this underpinning of performance that goes into it because ultimately what you have to do is perform to show people everything that you are and I love that and I'm going to run with that and I appreciate that and every profession you just mentioned you wake up in the morning and you put on your costume mm -hmm. I can tell people who are raised in a certain cultural way and have some connections with education higher education the blazer, the shirt and tie, mm -hmm. and the kind of slacks they're wearing. I can see that and go, uh-huh, I know something about you. <laughs> the doctors, the chefs, whoever, 
they know that part of their finishing school professional development was mm -hmm. how do you behave? Now, whether or not you have a script, you have certainly done the exercises of mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. That's very, very true. You and I both know that it is not exactly accurate to call certain things on television reality TV mm -hmm. <laughs> because we know they're scripted. Uh -huh. And we know that as soon as the camera is turned on, hello, camera, I'm acting for you because mm -hmm. that eye is watching me, mm -hmm. how I get dressed and walk out of the house in the morning, how I uh, attire myself, the, the beautification that people go through. Mm -hmm. All of that is I am presenting myself. And one of my teachers at Yale, Robert Ferris Thompson, has a book he calls African Art in Motion mm -hmm. that people know that they are art and they present themselves adorned and physically in such a way that you see me manifesting the inner qualities by the way I dress, move, speak, and behave. Mm -hmm. So all of that is very true, and there's nothing wrong with knowing it. The problem is when you're faking it. Uh-huh. It's that ties into so I interviewed um, Blanche Dubois, uh, a a well-known drag queen, like the right, the mother of all uh, Southern Illinois uh, drag here, and she was talking about RuPaul and the RuPaul's Drag Race show and how even though this is supposed to be like radical exposure of self by these performers through this television show, that a lot of it's actually manufactured and what you get to see of those performers through the show is not necessarily who they really are as a person. And that's disappointing about where media has gone in order to, instead of exposing reality through whatever way we develop media, that it is actually taken away from the reality. Sorry, you had a... <laughs> no, I was thinking of the three or four performers, mm -hmm. actors, musicians, who then got a life in politics. Mm -hmm. The more we see someone, the more comfortable we are, and the more we believe that we really do know them. Mm -hmm. Just because I've seen a half dozen Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, and <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> that would not mean that I should vote for him because he's comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. No, that would have been true of Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. Sonny Bono, the, the man who was on the old Love Boat show, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> but all of those people presented themselves in such a way that I got comfortable with you, so therefore I trust you. Mm -hmm. It's going on all the time in cultures. You're going to get up and do that dance that I've always known, so I, you've got my applause. Mm -hmm. That's going to translate into my support, into my loyalty. Mm -hmm. I see that in the Catholic Church all the time. The more red silk you can wrap around you, the more I'm supposed to believe that you have a legitimate authority to speak to me and about me. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That fashion does not tell me you have authority. <laughs> it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem. And even, uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but those <laughs> kinds of fashion statements need to be brought up to date 
to where we can see them because mm -hmm. basically what you're actually communicating is I'm out of touch with your reality. Yeah. And it's not necessarily aspirational. No, it isn't. You know, what was, and, and even at that, to have even said in the beginning that any of this is aspirational. Exactly. That the material aspect, that the, uh, you know, presentation aspect, that's anything other than raw truth. Exactly. I, that's what I like about our current Pope. Now, that's one of the many things I like about him. <laughs> <laughs> story at, at, at Creighton University. Uh, I was dressed like this when I taught, when I worked in the theater. Mm -hmm. When I went into the St. John's College Church to do midnight mass on Saturdays, I put on all of my vestments. Mm -hmm. We had an older priest on that campus who used to just be irate that some of us younger priests never dressed like a priest. <laughs> it just so happened oh no he would never leave the house without the full Roman collar the whole uh -huh. clerical attire and one day it just so happened that both of us were walking down the sidewalk 24th street down the sidewalk together and three or four students came up towards us and every single one of them said hi father brown they didn't know who he was <laughs> I wasn't dressed like a priest but they knew who I was uh -huh. I get that all the time people know there are a lot of people who think that that's my first name because they, I mean, Father, Father is your first name. I love Story. <laughs> Long way of getting from Creighton to Yale to the University of Virginia. Uh -huh. After my second year there, they asked me to be in a crisis response, the, Afro, the dean of Afro-American affairs. Mm -hmm. I threw receptions for the black students who were graduating. One of those receptions this little bitty short black woman walked up to me and she said, what was wrong with your mama? <laughs> what? Why she named you such a funny name? And I said, I don't think Joseph is a funny name. <laughs> she said, Joseph, everybody around here calling you father. And I said, yes, ma'am, that's because I'm also a priest. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I said, some days I am too. <laughs> uh, uh. So some people, my mother told me this story. She was at Kroger's in East St. Louis one day, and this woman walked up in the produce section. She said, Arlene, how is Father Brown? And she said, why are you asking me that? He died in 1953. <laughs> And the woman said, no, I meant your son. And she said, oh, I never think of him that way. <laughs> so now you know why I should be back in therapy. <laughs> God. Oh, I wish I could put more into my laughs right now than what I am. This is phenomenal. And I like the this has kind of gotten us to the progression uh, going through some of the other spaces that you've been in and teaching. So thank you for providing a natural segue to how you came to be in Carbondale. Well, it does depend on that University of Virginia first hire out of Ph.D. studies. Mm -hmm. I had gone back to graduate school because I had been asked by a priest friend of mine to go to a black Catholic theology symposium. And I didn't think I was qualified because I didn't have that kind of an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. But the week after he asked me in September of 1978, I decided to apply after having been out of school for 10 years to go get my Ph.D. Mm -hmm. So 
it was always with the understanding that I would be part of that black Catholic theology movement. Mm -hmm. I finished in 1984, but the person who had been running that black Catholic theology program had died suddenly, and we had lost contact. So the plan for him to bring me from graduate school down to Xavier University mm -hmm. died with him. Mm -hmm. The people at Yale told me, okay, we don't mind you going to Xavier to be part of all that, but we want you to go somewhere else where you can establish your credentials first. Mm -hmm. So I went to the University of Virginia, and I was there for six years. That program, well established by then, was going through some real major crises mm -hmm. of leadership. And the leadership at Xavier asked me, would you please come down here and take over this program because I'd been doing it in the summers. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. So in 1991, I moved there. It was not a good idea. I helped to sta stabilize the program, but it was a time when Xavier University, historically black Catholic university, they were trying to do something to change it, their image. And that meant a historically black college was reducing the number of black faculty to look more competitive. In one year, they got rid of 14 of us I was running a semi-independent institute, and mm -hmm. the president of the university wanted it incorporated completely under his budget control, and I said no. Mm -hmm. The students started protesting all of the faculty who were being dismissed, and I got called in as a, char a, witness, a character witness to one of those lawsuits because even though the judge kept telling the, the, the uh, lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer, not to ask me certain questions, I was quick enough to answer them all in one. He asked me one question, I answered all five points. Mm -hmm. It was too late. They had to settle out of court in the plaintiff's behalf. <laughs> so I got fired. It, I was evicted from university housing, told I got two weeks to find another place, mm -hmm. and my contract was terminated because the president of the university thought that I had organized the student protests, and I hadn't. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I confronted the students, they told me, we weren't going to tell you what we were doing because we know you would have told us to cease and desist and go back <laughs> to homework. Too late. Uh -huh. All of that happened. And I could not get a teaching job anywhere in this country for three years mm -hmm. because every time I applied or was asked to apply, they had to check your references. Mm -hmm. So they kept calling Xavier, and the president said, don't hire him. Mm -hmm. He's a troublemaker and he will destroy good authority. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's is true. Any, is there anything but that, oh, that may be true, but <laughs> what's that got to do with it? So a priest friend of mine who just died a few months ago as a bishop of Youngstown, he said to me as he was driving me to the airport in Chicago once, he said, why don't you get ahead of this and tell everybody what happened to Xavier uh -huh. before they go looking for it? Yeah. So I did. And one woman that we, when I was still working there, a woman that I had interviewed for a job there for the Black Studies program that I had helped to organize, mm -hmm. she eventually came to SIU Carbondale. Yeah. She turned us down. So I'm reading the Chronicle of Higher Education and see in the smallest, teeniest print possible, job opening, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. I know Carbondale. My, you know, <laughs> my nephew went to school here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm from East St. Louis. I know Carbondale. A whole lot of the teachers and, and morticians and other people in East St. Louis went to school here. Yeah. I know the school. All right. So I thought, black studies, got a degree. I need a job. I applied. <laughs> now, this is the gospel truth. I didn't read the ad carefully. <laughs> they were looking for the director of black American studies, and I thought they were looking for the teacher. <laughs> so when I got a phone call from that woman who came here instead of Xavier, she said, oh, thank God you applied because we really need somebody to turn this program around. I'm going, uh, yeah. <laughs> but now here's the story that tells you that I bring in this intuitive spiritual thing all the time. Mm -hmm. At that Christmas after I had applied, I was back in East St. Louis having dinner with my mom at her house. And I said, oh, mom, I need to tell you, I applied to Carbondale for a job. And she was in the middle of, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I guess I'll have to pray on that. And she finished eating. So I came up here for a job interview. I was one of the two finalists. They gave the job to the other guy. And the argument was, well, he is presently employed, and you've been out of work for a while, so we gave it to him. I have six college degrees, St. Louis University, one, Johns Hopkins, one, Yale, four. Okay. <laughs> I had one book published and two more under contract to be published, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't hire me. He had been cultural, the director of the cultural center at Knox College, which only had 50 black students mm -hmm. in its entire population. I'm working at a historically black college, dean of Afro-American affairs at the University of Virginia. I think I had the qualifications. Yeah. They didn't want me. But when he turned it down finally, after having said yes, negotiations faltered, huh. they had to offer it to me. <laughs> they gave me a contract that I thought was insulting. No tenure, even though I would be running a tenure-granting department. Mm -hmm. Very low salary. Subsequently, I found out $13,000, and they left him. And they had offered him tenure upon arrival. They offered me a contract that I was supposed to say no to. Mm -hmm. But because I have a religious community affiliation, I'm not doing this for retirement money. Yeah. So I said yes because there was a need. And I got here, and everything I was afraid of turned out to be true. 1997, I arrived here. The second day I was in the job, I had to fire both of our secretaries because they were countermanding each other, undermanding each other's work. The mm -hmm. one in the morning would do something, the one in the afternoon would throw it away. My predecessor had hired a young graduate student who did not have a master's degree to teach a 300 upper-level class. She wasn't qualified. I asked somebody why, and that person said to me, well, you all have different standards than we do. I told them my five-year plan in 1997 was to have a major in black studies. We didn't get it until 2010 because all of the major administrators on the campus said, we don't see any need for that, including the people who offered me the contract that I was supposed to say no to. They, I found out papers that were left in my desk because my predecessor did not know how to use a shredder, <laughs> that they had a plan in place to, re, to erase black studies within two years. 
And the dean who hired me told me that, that October, if you had said no, we were going to close down that department. And I said yes. <laughs> and that was 23 years ago. And they're still trying to do it. And I'm still saying no. So my job has been since I was 12 years old to break up the social patterns of segregation when my family moved up to Wisconsin and I had to, my little sister and I had to desegregate a Catholic school system. Mm -hmm. I've been saying yes and no on those levels consciously for now 65 years. Yeah, I can still do that much math. 65 <laughs> years. I've been doing that. And while I was not part of, I was not on the bus with the Freedom Riders, that's my generation. I'm the generation of the Little Rock Nine. The three of them who went to SIU in, in 2007, we had a wonderful reunion with those three people. And I did an interview like we're doing here, but mm -hmm. over at WSIU, and I asked them, I've gone through so much trauma since I was 12 years old. I'm going to ask you guys, was it worth it? Mm -hmm. And we, everybody looked down at the table. Because no one ever asked how much price do you pay to be the one who's the agent of social change. Mm -hmm. But I don't see all the different titles that I carry and all the jobs that I have to perform as being separated or contradictory. If I don't have hope as a professor and a teacher, if I don't manifest my hope in my students, I can't mentor them. If I don't manifest hope on that campus, it will never be welcoming to the people that they most need now in order to survive. And I can't find that hope unless I'm standing at an altar somewhere saying, the story ain't the person hanging on the cross. The story is the person who came out the tomb. So every time you're going to roll a stone and put me inside a tomb, I got to find a way to push that stone away and come out of that enclosed space. And that's what's going on in this country. But that's what has been going on in this country. From the time people started howling about their enslavement in the bottom of slave ships. I teach a course called the Slave Narratives. Not because I want to tell everybody about how bad slavery was, but I want to show them the heroes that I have found who said, I'm sorry, this ain't it. And if we had more people learning to say, I'm sorry, this ain't it, we'd be a whole lot farther along in this country and in this world, I think. I'm absorbing. Okay. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> So how did I get here? After they turned me down, a month went by, and I got the phone call. Well, you know, we offered it to the other guy, but he got greedy, so we told him to go to hell. You don't still want the job, do you? <laughs> and all I could see was my mother with that fork extended in the air. I guess I'll have to pray on it. Ooh, I don't have a choice. I got to go because she wanted all of her children somewhere within reaching distance of East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So my brother was in Springfield, I was here, and my sister moved up from Jackson, Mississippi, back to East St. Louis. I don't know how she did it. 
but it worked. <laughs> and she got a priest friend of mine to drive her down here. I got here in August, and the first part of October, she had this priest friend of mine at St. Louis University drive her down so she could look around the house, see everything. I like this. This is going to work. And she got back in the car and went home. She only came back down here one other time when a young man that I had mentored and that my brother and she had also mentored was graduating, and he didn't have a grandmother anymore, so she said, I'll come there to your graduation. So she had my brother drive her down here for his graduation. By that time, she was very frail. Had to be 90 by that time. And um, so I had another student put her in the wheelchair and get her all over campus. And we had a reception the next morning for the student, and she had had enough of it. So she got up from the kitchen table and walked into the living room and shook everybody's hand and said, you know, it was really wonderful for meeting y'all. But if we ever see each other again, it'll be at my house because I ain't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what can I tell you? <laughs> I get it honest. <laughs> but you give it honest, too. And when I say give it, I don't mean like in the presentation way that we've talked about here, but I'm talking about your influence over those that seek you out. Whether yes. the world pushes your way, whether they <laughs> whether they want it or not. <laughs> what I don't even I don't even have a question here. I'm just I'm trying to find uh, a, a way to get into uh, you know, the, just the discussion of of how your experience has been an influence on uh, the young people that you've been able to to teach and engage with, or simply facilitate their ability to teach themselves. When I was in the fourth grade in East St. Louis, St. Mary's grade school, my classmates, three or four of them, would gather around outside on the playground, and I'd be sitting on a windowsill reading the comic books for them. They were all looking at the pictures, but I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. Fourth grade. When I was in high school in Wisconsin, only black kid in the school, I took personal typing because they wanted all college-bound students to know how to type. So we had touch typing in this big typing uh, lab where the business students had to also do a whole lot more of that kind of clerical work. And I'd be sitting there after school doing some of my homework, and I'd have classmates come in to sit down and just talk about, you know what happened yesterday, I'm on blah, 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 and I'm sitting there, well, you know what I think, and I'm just, I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't know what I was doing. But they would also, as when we had our 50th anniversary back in 2012, at least four of them said to me, you know, we never would have gotten through high school if you hadn't tutored us every morning before school started. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> I knew you were dumb, but I know you were that dumb. <laughs> um, but I've known since I was a sophomore in high school that I wanted to be a teacher. There were three things I wrote on, my, on that list when they asked me in that class one day. A teacher a counselor, and a writer. 
I started writing poetry when I was 12 years old, started publishing it when I was a sophomore in high school. It saved my life in a number of times because if I didn't find anybody I could talk to, I could talk to the paper. Mm-hmm. The books did the same thing. My father would give me books on my birthdays, and when I was studying in St. Louis in the, in the uh, philosophy program, I'd go over to see them once a month or something like that. He'd give me another book. He taught me the basics of black studies, the books he gave me. So I just have always been doing that, but here's my real story. The day I was going to go off to the seminary, August 14th, 1962, my father was going to drive me to the train station. I was going to go from Beloit, Wisconsin to Minneapolis. They were going to pick me up and take me out into the woods. And my mother said to me, I'm not going to the train station. But she gave me this hug in the doorway, and she said, pray for your brother. My brother was 11 years older than me, had been a heroin addict for 37 years, in and out of about five or six major penitentiaries, from everything from theft, inciting to riot, to second-degree murder. And her attitude is, you take care of somebody because that's somebody's brother, somebody's child. I grew up in a neighborhood where both of my grandmothers took care of everybody around them. I'm doing tutoring work and not knowing I'm doing it. So anybody who walks into my office or into my periphery, I know you came from somewhere. And I know you got a story. And I know that some people try to beat that story down so it's (laughs) silent and you're scared to tell it. Because that was me. And that was him. And that was my sister. So all I know is I know how to get that story out of you if I have to. (laughs) And once I do, you're going to be feeling so much better about yourself. Because it's something I always ask my students when I'm talking on them on a personal level. How much are you worth? No, no, I really want to know how much are you worth? Not Not what price somebody else put on you. And I see I'm bringing that out of black studies. Frederick Douglass was worth a whole lot more than what they put in the ledger book. Harriet Tubman was worth a whole lot more. They proved it by breaking free and becoming fully realized human beings of infinite value. I teach another class called the spirituals. And one of the great songs is, anybody ask you who you are, you tell them you're a child of God. Because a whole lot of people are going to call you everything else but that. And if that's how I approach you, at some point, you better start approaching yourself that way. It's what I tell them. And I think it works. Does it put more weight on your shoulders or does it make it lighter? Makes it lighter. It makes it lighter. I had been sexually abused three times when I was a child. Five years old, seven years old, nine years old. And after the seven-year-old thing, I started developing migraine headaches because it was stuff I didn't want to think about. I went into therapy when I was a philosophy student at St. Louis University for almost two years. Doctor said, those headaches ain't your fault. And I said, you mean other people make me sick? 
<laughs> I've been saying that for years. You make me sick. Uh, and he said, yeah, I guess that's true. And I said, okay. But it took me another 10 years maybe to finally say I'm sick and tired of these headaches. And I had a new attitude. If you bring me a headache, I'm going to have to give it back to you because I ain't going to bed with one tonight. <laughs> and if I do everything I feel my heart is telling me to do, then it's not on me how you choose to act on it. It makes it lighter. I don't have to anguish over that I saved somebody today. It ain't up to me to save nobody. It's up to me to give them the option to realize that they're worth saving. That's true for the individual, a freshman, a junior high school kid, or Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. I'm going to give you the choice to find out if you think you are worth saving. But call me when you figure that out. Because I'm going to go home and listen to some music, maybe read a book. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I am not going to wind up with that headache burdening me that I have to be responsible for someone else's life. As I have told people, again, in different maybe contexts, Jesus was on the cross for three hours, not a lifetime. He might want you to get off that cross and start walking again. How do we find, we can always find the death and the destruction and the imprisonment. Do we ever find a way to renew ourselves to the point where we can resurrect ourselves. And in our country, with all the problems of racism, sexism, classism, disease, environmental toxicities and destruction, do we actually believe that we can be renewed and resurrected? I don't know what else I can do but preach that. I'd have a lot more consideration for the religion that raised me if I was taught more on the values of the resurrection than the values of the death on the cross. Thank you. My father had to start teaching me how the Catholic Church was racist when I was seven. And I've had some really famous people ask me over the years, why are you still a Catholic? Why are you wanting to be a priest? Why? And my attitude is because it's my church. And it's my mom and daddy's church. And they saw me coming in there to kind of shake, the, not shake things up, but just to change the complexion. My father had inoperable cancer for nine years. And he would, he told a friend of his, I ain't dying until I said that boy a priest. Okay. <laughs> and he didn't. He lasted another six years after I was ordained. It was beautiful. I see something in you, and I've always had, and I saw him resurrect himself over and over, and my mother, but my brother, the one I just talked about, the last 13 years of his life, he was a powerful figure in Springfield, Illinois, a organizer and moderator and facilitator for Alcoholics Anonymous, and he started the Narcotics Anonymous chapter in Springfield, got all sorts of awards and plaques and certificates. His memorial service in Springfield was standing room only because of the people he had helped. He came out of the grave. Mm-hmm. Takes a lot of nerve. But you also have to 
know that some people really want you to. And that's what makes the difference in this country, in this world now. A lot of people don't know that anybody wants them to come out of the grave, I think. I've talked about this a couple other times as well. The, the school of political thought for folks on the right side of the political spectrum that is a don't tell me how to think mentality, right? Mm -hmm. While mm -hmm. folks on a left side of the political spectrum may have a this is how you need to think mentality. And the clash of those two ideas outside of what both sides of the political spectrum really want, which is a resurrection. And we preach all this idea of unity and togetherness and yada, 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 that to me very much can land as a hollow message in this day and age. But the idea of a resurrection, a rebirth, right, that, that almost plays into a uh, South Africa truth and reconciliation, because that's what ultimately truth and reconciliation was, was not about you think this or you don't think that or this is a punishment for your action or this, that. This is a wash away the sins. What is truth and resurrection? The problem with America is that we have a master narrative that says the past is not worth dealing with. It's only today and the future. You can't go back and undo the past. And my response is, that's why we have lawyers. You can. <laughs> and that's what we have churches for, because you have to remember where you came from. And the covenant of the Jewish Christian Islamic tradition, same covenant, same ancestor of faith, is religions. you used to be <laughs> a slave, and now you're not. Don't forget what you used to be, and don't treat other people the way you got treated. You don't see that happening in this country. Of the God-fearing nation, which God are you fearing? No, I think it's the one you actually built in the desert. That's the one I think you're fearing, or at least happy with. But my point is this, if one side wants to tell you, don't tell me what to think, and the other side says, this is what you should think, my response would be, what are you thinking? <laughs> and what part of it makes you feel good? And what part of it tells you that you're hurt? The great civil rights activist and legend in the black community, Ruby Sales, on being once with Krista Tippett. Love that show. <laughs> a great, great interview. Where does it hurt? Miss Ruby, and you can find that anybody on YouTube, thank you very much. <laughs> Where does it hurt? If you ask that kind of question and just get the answer, the next step statement will be, what can we do about that? I don't care. I have run into people who were so far apart from what they thought my political agenda would be. I ain't got laughing and joking. Now, you make sure you keep in touch with me. That happened just as recently as last night at a grocery store here in town. <laughs> so it's not. I'm not asking you how you voted, but you're going to tell me at some point. <laughs> but I want to know, what are you thinking? 
I'm not afraid of your thoughts. I'm not afraid of your history. I'm not afraid of your dreams or your nightmares. So can we get you to stop being afraid of them? And after that, you might be able to say, if I'm not that afraid or that tight or that compressed and constrained, maybe I can start asking other people. And that's the greatest way of social interaction is to listen to what other people got to tell you. But if I'm so afraid they're going to unlock the door and all my messiness is going to come out, that goes back to the acting, the transparency, the ministry, Jesus hanging naked on the cross. Okay, but that ain't the end of the story. If you tell your story in the right way, you'll get yourself off that cross and you'll be able to bond with others. And I think that's what we need to be doing. But as I have said rather strongly in the last couple of weeks, there are no others. There's only us. And if we don't understand that, we don't have a future. It's not us versus them. It's us. That goes back to that covenant thing. We used to be slaves in Egypt. So therefore, we're not supposed to oppress the alien, the sojourner, and the stranger among us. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if that neighbor started out as a stranger. As ourself, it might be the real problem is I don't know how to love myself. So I don't want you to get anywhere near me because I don't want you to see that. Well, it's kind of like my migraine headaches. There was stuff I couldn't think about until I was able to process it so that once I could think about it and turn it into a story and not a burden, I couldn't get rid of it. That's what's going on in this country. That's what goes on in most people we know, I think. I love for a broad swath of white America that is so concerned with the concept of, well, I'm not my ancestors, right? I'm not the slave owner. I'm not the oppressor. I'm not the colonizer, right? Which is a very different perspective than the black perspective of America, which is I am my ancestors. That's a very good point. And to to hear you say that, to to open and embrace that story is to solve for the parts of the equation that are wrong. Mm -hmm. To take an eraser to the paper and not to change the equation as a whole as to make it not exist, but to change it so that the actual outcome is what the right answer is supposed to be. Exactly. Because somewhere along the line, the math is wrong. That's exactly right. And to know that Chase Manhattan Bank <laughs> is now discussing reparations because one of the banks that is their originator made a whole lot of money mm -hmm. off of buying and selling slaves yeah. that the Jesuit community sold at Georgetown in 1838. Mm-hmm. You are your ancestors because if you hadn't had that endowment, you couldn't have built your fortune bank mm -hmm. and you wouldn't have been able to offer that money to the people that you liked as opposed to the people that you got your money from. Mm -hmm. Because redlining and all that other stuff, 
I've said this often. The law tells me that I have a right to retrieve any property that was stolen from me. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't steal it. I bought it off Luther down there at the, at the parking lot. <laughs> That's nice, but it's got my initials and my barcode on it. <laughs> That's my TV set. Mm-hmm. So we got to start talking about where the TV set used to be, who stole it, and how you bought it for $25. That's my TV. So much of what we go through in this world, in this country, is, well, I, would, I don't know where it came from. What would happen if somebody stole your TV set? I'd go get it. Yeah, you would. Uh, can I have my TV set and put it in the trunk? <laughs> we have got to understand that an awful lot of those people who are at the border are not immigrants. They're returning people. The wars that were fought to establish the freedom to enslave others, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, where we took so much of Mexico and turned it into America. When you have soldiers that enforce boundaries that do not exist in nature for the well-being and economic prosperity of other people and the destruction of other people's ways of life, you got a problem, environmental problems. I was saying this 25 years ago, more than that, when I was, still, when I was back at the University of Virginia. You all don't understand that you're changing the nature of this planet by every time you wash your hair palm oil, all that stuff. They're destroying agriculture in Africa in order to grow this stuff so you can have all of the best cosmetics possible. You are implicated. I don't care what the fast food joint is. Does it mean that you have to tear, destroy the Amazon in order to have more cattle farms so that you can have more food that you don't need to be eaten in the first place? You are implicated. You are implicated. We don't understand that we are only one. And until we do understand that, it's them. and You can't take what I got. Uh, and you got it how? Well, I don't make no difference. I earned it. <laughs> Actually, you didn't. My father moved from, from East St. Louis to Wisconsin because he was a constructor, bricklayer by trade, and union. And he wanted to help black people build their own houses they can own And what at that time in Beloit, Wisconsin, was a company town. The three biggest corporations owned most of the houses that the black people lived in. One family had met, bought five acres of land. They were going to put some houses up. He built two houses in all the years he was there. Never made more than $5,000 because the corporations went to the city and to the banks and said he's not going to do it. And the city manager told my daddy one day, you, you know, your wife works for the city hospital. You keep trying to do this, and she's going to lose her job. Who's going to feed your children? The American dream? The American dream. I had to watch that man have almost 20 heart attacks my junior year of high school. 
But you know what? When one of John Kennedy's relatives, I don't remember which one it was, might have been R. Sergeant Shriver, I don't remember now, started the pilot program, so Operation Head Start, one of those five pilot sites was Beloit, Wisconsin, and my daddy ran it. You have told me I can't do this, but I'm going to do something. And if I can do something to benefit these little babies, that's what I learned from. So all the people who want to say, well, you, I'm not descended from enslaved owners. No, but you are the beneficiary of what my father was not allowed to have. And I know that. But you want to know something? He got over it. How come you can't? Thank you, Father Brown. You're welcome. That's episode nine. Um, I hope it moves you as much as it moved me. Um, and I'm so very happy to have this piece of media to be able to share. Uh, have a good one whatever that one may be.